You're listening to the Mzanzi Wako podcast. We need to be careful what we tell young people. So it's great to tell them their status and help them manage that, their own HIV positive status. But we should be careful about encouraging broad disclosure to everyone. It doesn't always help. Ilona Tosca is a postdoctoral research fellow at the AIDS and Society Research Unit at the University of Cape Town. She is a research associate at the Department of Social Policy and Intervention at the University of Oxford. She was born in Albania, but has spent most of her life practicing legal migration in the UK, the United States, Southeast Asia, and since 2012, South Africa, where she has been involved with Mzanziwako since its inception. My main role is to focus on the quantitative um, part of the study. So anything from questionnaire design to um, helping the team problem solve with recruitment to data analysis and preceded by lots of data cleaning and presenting on those quantitative findings. How did this study come about and what were you looking at? Our work came about because different people were asking questions related to how young people who were taking long-term medication in South Africa, particularly antiretrovirals, um, were doing. And it came from another study that Professor Lucy Kluber and Dr. Francisca Mike at Oxford and Dr. Mark Boyce at Curtin University in Australia ran, which focused on um, AIDS-affected children, so either AIDS orphans or young people living with um, AIDS-sick caregivers in South Africa. And they, f- they realized that there was this emerging group of young people who are actually living with HIV, and that both um, people at the Department of Social Development and uh, Department of Health did not know a lot about, and they wanted to know more. This also happened in parallel with um, our understanding and our desire to stop um, pediatric HIV, so the desire to kind of stop parental-to-child transmission, but still having a cohort of young people who we want to know more about how to support as they grow up, in part living with HIV. It's not the biggest deal in their lives. I mean, they don't want it to be. And I guess adolescence is about wanting to be both extremely normal and extremely abnormal. So it's about navigating that transition while living with with HIV. What we then did is that we designed a study together with Professor Lucy Kluver and Dr. Rebecca Hodes and an amazing team at University of Cape Town and Oxford and a, a large fieldwork team, about 50 people, if not more, throughout the last four years, um, where we interviewed young people through a different set of methods. So we had colleagues like Dr. Beth Vale, who um, focused on doing a multi-method ethnography, meaning anything, you know, um, from washing dishes to walking to the clinic to coming back from school with young people to uh, my work and that of Dr. Maria Pantelic at the International AIDS Alliance who designed and ran this big survey together with our team, which involved interviewing about 1,500 adolescents three times in a row, which kind of helped us follow them up um, as they're growing older. The questionnaire asks about everything from favorite nickname to mental health issues, which are important for young people, to living with HIV, whether they know it or not, so using the right language, you know, um, and to talk about relationships and peers and family, um, things like school experiences, as well as specifics about sexual health and actually taking ARVs. Where we are now is that we've finished these three waves of interviews. Our incredible team in based in the Eastern Cape managed to find uh, nearly 94% of the young people three times in a row. So, I mean, the first time um, we found about 90% of those we were looking for, but then we went back and were able to find 94% each time, which is really wonderful because it means that whatever analysis we do, uh, our findings are 
not skewed too much by those who we were not able to find. And this was both because they had to take long trips, say, from the from the Eastern Cape to Joburg and Durban and Cape Town, as well as because they had extremely re- low refusal rates because they're really approachable, wonderful um, interviewers. We're now analyzing that, that data. And I guess the main research questions we had were in sort of three broad groups. One was to try and understand what does it mean in a kind of as rich as possible way to live with HIV in South Africa and to be part of this generation um, who is young but will hopefully live a very long life taking ART and live with the virus. And the second is to then quantitatively try to identify what were the most important factors linked with both ART adherence and retention care staying in, in in your engaged in your healthcare, and with better and and more sort of resilient sexual health, so not getting pregnant unless you want to, not having high risk sex, and and so on. And I guess the third was to try and sort of spend as much time as possible with young people living with HIV to truly know what they want, what are to be for, for them to be a part of the solutions that we could think of from the data to have regular engagement with them in what solutions work for them in helping with adherence and better sexual health. Had anyone ever spoken to these adolescents about HIV and AIDS and explained to them that they were living with this disease? We found that out of about a thousand young people living with HIV in our sample, about three quarters knew their status. Now it's very difficult for you know, a 13-year-old f- for someone to fully confirm what that means and to what degree that came um, as a consequence of seeing your medicines on TV or, you know, learning it uh, indirectly from your family members or whether it came from, you know, more kind of age-appropriate progressive learning process, which was the, the World Health Organization golden standards. But a high proportion knew their status or something about living with HIV and taking ARTs and how taking an antiretroviral treatment is the way to live healthily with HIV. How they learned, as I said, varied, but often the best examples included a hyper, you know, very dedicated healthcare provider and caregiver, this um, this kind of combination of people who are like a team working together with the young person to keep them healthy. We also found quantitatively that if they had learned a bit earlier it was better so and that's actually what the recommendation is don't wait till they're 16 because you're just so worried they're gonna go crazy when they hear you know say it as as quickly um as not as early but between 10 and 12 start to gradually inform them we also were asked by caregivers to help them tell their young person and so we identified in the communities and the facilities we worked in we work now in about 70 facilities in the study area who provide care to adolescents living with HIV, we also identified very good counselors, like people who we knew were particularly good at at helping young people learn because it's about their status, because it's not the same as, you know, telling a 35-year-old woman or man. It's not necessarily easier or harder, but they're just some some ways of doing it better. So we would then refer our young people and caregivers to those, like take them there one day or help them set an appointment, even if it wasn't their main facility. We also had examples where the caregiver would say, no, this child does not know their status. And then the young person would actually know so much about their status that they'd learned in different ways. And I guess that is part of what this is quite challenging because the young people don't exist in in a vacuum. They are exposed to TV and to social media and to peers and as well as caregivers and healthcare providers. 
we looked a little bit more into what it means to know your status. And that's analysis that um, that was part of my doctorate. But it was to kind of look at how that then affects future behavior when it comes to um, both ART adherence and sexual and productive health. So knowing your status, your own HIV positive status was very protective for both ART adherence and not having unprotected sex, potentially because you're more motivated to do both. Whether you knew, knew your sexual partner status or whether you told them your status uh, weren't as, as strong and the guidelines here are also developing and uh, in part because young people are, their relationships are fluid and they're, for, for all of us when we were young, it was harder to label and to have a longer term vision of being with someone and because living with HIV gives you um, a different understanding of your role in a relationship and, you're, and your negotiating power and, and worthiness. Um, we actually found that um, telling your partner your HIV positive status did not make a difference and knowing your partner's status actually made you less able to negotiate safe sex. So that was just a, I mean, there are preliminary findings, but I find them thought provoking that we just need to be careful what we tell young people. So it's great to tell them their status and help them manage that, their own HIV positive status, but we should be careful about kind of encouraging broad disclosure to everyone. It doesn't always help. I asked Ilona about how long the process took for the three stages that the research ran over. Yeah, the first step was very different from the other two in that we we were looking for young people, but we didn't exactly know where they were. So we knew that prior studies of um, that included adolescents living with HIV had had to focus on facilities because it was just where young people were coming regularly. And we started there, but then we realized if we just stayed there, we couldn't actually get all the young people and we'd have a skewed sample. We'd have only those who were eager to come back and we wanted to know what makes young people come back and those who are unable to return to facilities and be engaged in their care, what is making a difference. So we designed a strategy with the research team and with um, people at hospitals like Dr. Luntugalo and um, in the Eastern Cape to try and figure out how we could do this in a sensitive way. So we ended up with um, the help of nurses and community healthcare workers and patient advocates from organizations like Katimpila and the Kaiskama Trust in Hamburg and the Eastern Cape to actually try and find young people in their home communities, but in the process also recruit peers so that there's no sort of a bit of stigma control. So we ended up with a bigger sample of adolescents, which was wonderful for quantitative purposes. Bigger is better. But it involved quite a lot of careful tracing and negotiating and being as gentle as possible with their status. And as a result, going from, you know, 50-something facilities to over 180 communities. It was a lot of hard work and quite slow for the first round. And then we, by the time we finished that, it had been about 16, 18 months. So then we started going back to the adolescents again and try to ask them about changes since that first time. And they were quite young in the first round. They were an average age of about 13.5 or 0.8 years old. So they've grown older. But we were we'd heard so many stories of young people sort of turning 16 and then becoming very rebellious or having such a hard time. We like then did a bit more, kind of applied for a few more research grants, which was a lot of our time in the universities, to then go back a third time to talk to them truly when they were in that older adolescent stage, the majority of them. So the follow-ups were harder because there was a high level of mobility in the sample, but it was different from the original tracing where um, we had to sort of find where they were. Young people were generally very happy to speak to us again. I mean, many of them call our team regularly, and it was some of the, for many of them, it was some of the few times that they were spoken to someone in detail about their lives. 
Um, and we did a very, we had a very rigorous have still a very rigorous referral process. So if things were disclosed to us that meant the young person had recently been in harm and needed help or was at risk of being harmed, we would we had a plan in place to to try and support, including taking them to facilities where either health or somewhere else where they could get help. And anyone who's ever worked in an NGO or an MPO or with those kinds of organizations know that getting the members of the community on board and to nurture that trust is essential. How did you manage those relationships? Yeah, it's a full-time, many people's level of effort that made it happen. So when I was saying the the team had to take their time in tracing people, it involved that. So having almost like a staggered approach, depending on each area we're going to. So if we're going to a facility to you know start with the management, the health facility, to start with the management and introduce the study there. And we had a senior nurse working with us in a clinic-focused team. And then arrange with them what worked for that facility for us to to work within their space, whether that space for us to sit separately or if we're going to actually sit with the counselors or with the pharmacist. Or, and so that was a whole separate negotiation. At facilities, um, at communities, we would go to ward counselors, for example, start there and introduce ourselves and make sure that they understood that we were a nonpartisan, a political team. And we explained to them what we were trying to do. And I mean, people really wanted to help. They wanted us to be there. Then often, because our team is from the same area, but they're not always from the 180 communities we went to, would often have someone local who would join our team for, say, a month and would just help us navigate the different parts, both in terms of safety and in terms of sort of a familiar face that, that people in the community knew. So it involved in negotiation at multiple levels. And then with young people themselves and their caregivers, you know, you don't want to just say to a young person you have one you should be a part of this study because you your grandmother or your mother or your father said yes so you have to negotiate consent there at a at a respectful level while legally they're unable to consent before 18 that was also a level of kind of by getting by and they had to want to do it and to share their lives what were some of the more nuanced findings in the research? This wasn't a trial. We didn't go in kind of having two groups and said one group gets one thing, the other doesn't, and we want to compare which one does better. This is a social science study, an observational study, trying to understand patterns of things quantitatively and qualitatively of young people's lives. Um, so we had some hypotheses or ideas. For example, this disclosure dynamics that we looked at, so many of it was enriched by different team members. So... The qualitative team, um, w- led by Dr. Rebecca Hodes, would do some fieldwork and would come back and say, oh, this is happening, or we would do some quantitative analysis, and then they would sort of feed into each other and would come up with with a stronger finding because of that. We've also tried to respond to what people in, in both in government and in in our partners say at the UN agencies want to know. So there's a lot of questions, you know, as to what kind of things we can provide to young people, services to help them do better. So we frame then our analysis. We have the data to look at it that way. So, for example, we've tested 12 or 15 different things linked to ART adherence, but we found that attending a support group, even though it was only about 5% of them that attended monthly and 13% in the past year, that made a huge difference for ART adherence, so being able to adhere to your medication. And uh, when we looked at relationships with caregivers quantitatively, it wasn't having 
like a hug and a kiss from your caregiver, which is called par positive parenting, that made the biggest difference. It was actually having strong supervision, good monitoring from your caregiver. So someone who knew where you were at all times, someone who told you where they were at all times, someone who asked you for a return time, who knew your friends. So this kind of idea almost of a scaffolding, not necessarily kind of the cuddling of a young person. And of course, having enough food, which is critical for young people living with HIV. And we found that some of these factors repeated themselves when I analyzed data on the sexual health. So actually having strong monitoring is also strongly linked with uh, more safe sex and also receiving what we called adolescent sensitive care. But really, it wasn't rocket science. It was not being yelled at at the facility, as well as being able to stay in school. So we have these patterns of findings that are quite powerful. So we know that staying in school, particularly for girls across the continent, means uh, less risk of HIV infection. It's called uh, like a social vaccine, education as a social vaccine. But what we found in a lot of our findings is that actually staying in school, where many of them get meals, which is linked to the food security part, but also you have less opportunity to perhaps engage in, in higher risks or sexual in encounters. So it was linked um, even amongst the HIV positive adolescents, adolescents living with HIV with, with better outcomes. And this idea of, of what helps at the facility setting is quite powerful because, uh, you know, people want to know what can we do at the facility. And we have what's called adolescent and youth-friendly health services. There is a checklist from the Department of Health. And then we thought, oh, let's look at what they have there and see do we have it in our data and see what makes a difference. We found that, for example, time of travel to the facility, which can range, you know, from 30 minutes to several multiple hours, or time that they have to wait to see someone didn't make a huge difference. However, if what made a big difference was if they felt that the provider had had enough time to see them. I can't tell you if the magical number is 12 minutes or 3.5 or 45, but it's about the young person feeling that they're being treated with enough time and respect and not being yelled at. And this is closely linked to our idea of parenting, right? So positive parenting did make a huge difference. Monitoring really helped, but kind of scolding and disciplining didn't. So I think it just can inform how we think of, of helping adolescents and to help us shift from treating them as children to kind of treating them as young people and young adults. Two more uh, sort of initiatives or, or analysis that we're working on that came from the, the study that we hadn't necessarily focused on initially is one looking at sort of patterns of health access in um, by young people and both a combination of sort of patient mobility and how they're transitioning in care. So going from pediatric care in some cases to adult care or going from hospital-based care to primary level care. And my colleague Roxana Hagigat um, is working on this and it's some really interesting when observing really interesting sort of patterns and we're just gonna need to spend some time to understand that better so that's something we hadn't thought of researching that we we're now looking at and that um, Rebecca and the qualitative team also have really rich sort of observations from young people and how they're choosing where they go and why the second is a small initiative in collaboration with one of our research partners a, a regional NGO called Pediatric Adolescent Treatment for Africa PATA and um, they work with a network of facilities, over 250 facilities in um, 23 countries. And in quite a few of them, they support peer supporters, so young people themselves who are trained to help other young people navigate the health system. And they provide different types of care. But recently, young people, these peer supporters, asked for help in providing 
kind of more specific like care, not just sort of talking to young people. So we're working um, with a small uh, grant from the Gates Foundation. We're working together to design a, a mobile app that trains peer supporters to help with mental health, specifically of um, HIV or adolescent moms living with HIV, but also um, all others that they may be supporting in the meantime. So these are things that came up from, from the work that we hadn't initially planned, planned to do. Who needs to get this information now to try and improve the lives of the adolescents living with HIV? I mean, that's the goal of doing such rigorous, expensive, relatively speaking, consuming research is that you'll, you'll be able to then analyze the data and share it as widely as possible and that it's representative within reason as much as possible that people can extrapolate. So for academics, the first step is generally to do highly rigorous analysis, which will stand up to peer review. But we that's really not, I mean, our main sort of um, ethical and moral goal as a team. Um, the goal is to get the findings out to people who can use them on the day-to-day basis. So we do it at multiple layers. And it's it's planned, so we've kind of separated our, our tasks. And so in addition to analyzing and writing papers and getting them published, which is kind of like the tick of rigorousness when it comes to do we know, is what we're saying kind of worth disseminating and sharing, we then... Do it, go back to the to where we did the study. So we've given findings back to both participants in the returning waves, to in community hall presentations, to facilities where nurses actually deal with the young people directly, to provincial level authorities, education, social development, and Department of Health. To and then so that's and to local NGOs that also provide care or train providers. So we've done and continue to do that as much as possible. Um, sometimes using existing opportunities, sometimes setting like meetings. So if I go next week to the Eastern Cape, who can we present that is keen and we've heard about that. Then at the national level, different team members, Rebecca, for example, um, led um, together with Lucy in drafting the Adolescent and Youth Health Policy that was approved last August by the Minister of Health. And that was, I mean, the ethos of that, but also the content was really shaped but by our communal research reflections and findings so the goal of working with young people in a participatory meaningful way is one of the first things in the conf- in the policy and um, then also like some of these findings about not giving young people things in silos but combining them and thinking about school and home and clinic and how to bring them all together um, and for example another finding that I think is quite important in that policy but also across what we present is this idea of what do you give people so there's a lot of doubt about say the child support grant and people think that young girls get pregnant to get the child support grant and this has been not by our team specifically but colleagues who we know and, and admire have looked at big sets of data from South Africa to show that it's if anything it helps young women not get pregnant again um, so it's kind of sharing that and then saying, well, if the child support grant or a similar material good, like a, a meal at school or a free uniform or going to a fee-free school makes a difference, how can that cash kind of material support be enhanced by what we call care components? So these parenting programs or these better services at a facility, these warmer, more responsive providers and then as they're growing older, how can we help them become self-sufficient? Well, I like to call it capabilities because it's cash plus care and capabilities. But this idea of 
you know, now they're alive, they're relatively well, and they're becoming young adults. They want to actually have a job and finish school, and how can we help with skills and, and what helps there? In a prior study, we found that very few of them had ever talked to anyone about their CV or finding a job. You know, so I think try to understand what of those things they're accessing and if what are the services and support and what may help. And then internationally and regionally, we have presented to say colleagues from the Southern African Development Community, um, from UNICEF, um, the Children's UN Agency, and UNFPA, which is um, Family Planning and Sexual Reproductive Health, and UNAIDS. Um, and they, we often, different members of the team often present at meetings where they're discussing young people and adolescents and how to support them. The goal is to, I mean, they, they hopefully will hear and, and put those findings in their next policies or in their next programming. When you look at Mzanzi Walker, what was behind the success of the project? I think the, perhaps the part that is rarely spoken of is how nonlinear research is. In, even when you have a quantitative study with this perfect survey and this, you know, multiple answer questions or s- skip patterns, is that, and you don't write about this in publications, but that there's just, it's an incredible group of people that every day get up and talk to young people and get difficult stories shared with them and that then have to process them. So to just say how important it is to self-care for the research team, particularly the interviewers, and to keep in mind that, to keep an eye on the goal, but also think that it, the research isn't like sort of me and... Um, the people who wrote the grants and are writing the papers, but it's like a, a huge collective of of stories and contributions from the participants to the actual interviewers and managers and people had to navigate cars breaking in the middle of nowhere and all of that. And it's not something we acknowledge very often, but it's huge dedication and passion that gets the numbers, which people like to use. And that point of self-care is an important one. I hope every one of us at all levels of this team has taken the opportunity to go and see someone or find a way to to do this. And different people in the team have struggled with different stories and different have had different coping mechanisms. But it's been at the forefront of my mind since we started that we always needed to talk about it. And it, you'd never get it a hundred percent right, but it's inc- the recognition is increasing. It's increasing not just for researchers, but even for, say, a huge cohort of community health workers that is every day in and day out for relatively small pay in South Africa, you know, being sort of the extended arm of the health system and reaching people of all ages and supporting them. And, you know, we're now hoping to extend this number by a lot more community health workers. But this need and the impetus to care for the carer is crucial. It is exhausting to just provide care without the space. And researchers can fall into that because you're getting people to share their lives with you. In some ways you're providing a, like a memory project service of sorts or care. So yeah, it's a, it's a big deal. And I don't know that we have found the perfect way to do it, but certainly counseling and just acknowledging it is the first step. What happens to Mzanzi Wako now? That's a great question. I guess it wouldn't be a great research project if it answered all the questions you could think of. So it's definitely, um, it's left us wanting to know more in some specific areas. Two things have, well, two specific things, but lots of kind of smaller side projects have come. Two of them that I'm really passionate about that I'm working on now, in addition to the analysis of the big data, magical data, 
is um, what we call Hey Baby, a study that's focusing on helping empower youth brought up in adversity with their babies and young children. The idea is that the young moms in our sample, there weren't a lot at the beginning, but more got pregnant as we went back to them. It's just a different a different way of being a mother because you are in in the meantime being cared for as a sort of young person or a child, but then you have a, a younger person to take care of. And if you're living with HIV, which not all of them were, but that kind of adds an extra layer of the need for specific health care and and what can one could help there? Is it a facility specific intervention that would help or can we do things at home and what are those things? So that's the next study then we're now in the process of finding young moms and interviewing them that will probably only we'll only get some good data in 2020 so it's a bit of a lag time the second part that we're very excited about is to try and understand what helps with sort of long-term outcomes so we've interviewed these young people three times between the ages of 10 and 22 really that's kind of what it ends up being but it would be amazing to know how they're doing when they're say 35 or 45 and what helped and if possible what didn't help um, so we can then try to stop it. So for that, we're collaborating with the National Health Laboratory of South Africa to, we've called it Uplift, Understanding Predictors of Lifelong Initiation, Follow-up and Treatment, and to try and figure out how things that were happening to young people earlier in their life and childhood and adolescence, how they are linked with longer term outcomes, so things in five years time and or 10 years time. So those are two kind of goals that, that we're working on. Make sure you listen to the next installment where we'll speak to more members from Mzanzi Wako.